Hey everybody and welcome back to BRIM, a global community at the intersection of climate innovation and justice. Today's episode is exciting for a few different reasons. Firstly, because it is the inaugural episode where we will be having more than one person interviewed at the same time. We're going to be hearing from our friends Orjit Reeves in India, as well as Jen Cole, who was born in Guam and now lives in Portland, Oregon. They're also both a part of BRIM's new Global Working Group, a small team that is pulled together from folks from outside the U.S. and from inside the U.S. to start thinking about how to build an innovation lab reimagining our world systems and moving towards new climate solutions together. I hope everyone enjoys and thank you so much for being here. Awesome. Well, I am so excited today to uh, have two amazing people with us for Brim's first interview of season two. Crazy. Um, but today I have with us Jen Cole and Orjit Reeves. Um, both of these people just quickly have been a huge inspiration to, to me. Um, you know, Jen and I are more recent friends. Um, having met over New York Climate Week, uh, what's that, a month ago? Seems like, we were saying it seems like a long... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> seems like a long time ago, but um, new friends and an older friend, uh, relatively in Orijit, um, the two of us met when I had a chance to go to India earlier this year. So um, thank you guys both so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Cool. Well, I, I want to start off just with um, a little bit about each of you. And um, one of the things that we've been we've been thinking about and talking about is telling your telling your own stories. Um, so I if that's all right with you both, I, I'd love to start there. And um, maybe for the sake of uh, reducing awkwardness, Jen, do you want to start and then we can go? To sure. <laughs> sure. I'll start. Um, so. Yeah, my name's Jen. I have done a lot in the field of ocean conservation and fisheries and social responsibility. And one of the reasons why I think I was really drawn to that path is, you know, my mom's family is from Guam and I was born in Guam. Um, and growing up, we would go back to Guam once every two years and spend the whole summer there. So I got to spend time with my family and I got to just really experience the ocean in a beautiful way. Um, our house was by the coastline and it was in a spot where, you know, my, my mom's family, my grandma's family used to subsistence fish. Um, so the guys would put out the nets. I think the woman in the family would uh, tend to a bar that we owned. Um, but Fishing was just a, you know, like for many island cultures, fishing is a huge part of your history um, and the way your family has functioned uh, in relation to the ocean and the land for generations, thousands of years. Um, and so growing up, I would go back to Guam once every two years. And it was a really kind of special thing for me because when I was six years old, uh, the water behind uh, my grandma's house in Guam became a marine preserve. Um, and so it became a marine preserve when I was six and I was going back every two years and I got to see these snapshots in time of how the coast and how the coral reef ecosystem um, was able to change and was able to actually improve because of some of the measures that input, had put, been put in place um, so that was happening, but also, you know, I thought it was a really good lesson in how decisions are made and how ocean conservation typically functions um, because the village and the community didn't have a lot of say in how this marine preserve was initiated um, mm. and sort of the rules around it, you know, in many places 
if you are indigenous to the region um, and you are, you know, fishing for a small amount of subsistence fishing, uh, you still are able to kind of take within this, you know, otherwise no take zone. Um, and none of those measures were put in place in Guam. And so you would often see people being arrested for fishing. Um, and oh, wow. for me, you know, I love the ocean. I, I love to eat seafood as well. I don't want to eat unsustainable seafood by any means. Um, but a part of the way that I approach ocean conservation is that we have to interact with the ecosystems that we're working within. Um, and it's, I think, rather naive to start from an approach of, okay, in order to protect this resource, we must not engage with it because that's just so divorced from the actual reality of the world. Um, and so in part because of that, you know, I studied marine biology for my undergrad and my master's. Um, and, you know, after I did all of those studies, you know, I think I, I kind of needed a break from the conservation space. Um, I was seeing a lot of things in the space that really weren't, uh, that were at odds with kind of more indigenous approaches to um, land and fisheries and ocean management. And so I left for a year or two. And then when I came back, I came back with the perspective that I want to do this work again, but I can't do it unless the approach to environmental sustainability and conservation um, goes hand in hand with putting people first and um, putting the people who are most impacted by sustainability and conservation and land and ocean and all of our waters, you know, unless these yeah. people are kind of first as well. Um, and so I spent six years working on human rights and seafood. You know, how do we ensure that the way that we're procuring seafood or the way that seafood is procured um, is not, you know, associated with human trafficking um, or mm -hmm. forced labor or all of these really tragic things that happen in most global supply chains, um, seafood included. So I can speak about that work a little bit more later, but um, was doing that work for sure. quite a few years. Um, and one of the things that I recognized was that this work is essential, um, but there are also root causes to why people become, um, you know, vulnerable to these conditions of forced labor or human trafficking. Um, and it's really important to address the root causes of that. And so now the work that I do, um, has a few companies that are ocean and fisheries focused, but really it's an incubator focusing on how to deploy all sorts of technology um, in all globally, really. Um, but any market that we know and are partnered with that says, hey, we have a need and we think there's a hardware technology solution that could solve it, we kind of say, all right, we'll work with you to build that technology. And I'm not one of the engineers on our team, but um, I do quite a bit of work with partnerships. Um, so really kind of meeting people and working with them to understand what they see as a yeah, tech need for their world and trying to close this kind of global tech equity gap um, for things mm -hmm. like higher incomes, um, and other associated benefits. So I think yeah. I started to get a little bit too formal there <laughs> and I was rambling, but that's, no, that's where great. I started and where I am now. <laughs> no, that was perfect, Jen. Thank you so much. And yeah, we can definitely dive more into, um, the work you're doing with good machine today and, um, the six years that you spent, um, with Fishwise, I think it was, mm -hmm. um, and, definitely some really interesting things to get into there, but um, thank you for, for starting us off. And yeah, Orajit, let's, let's uh, head over to you. Again. Okay. So uh, yeah, so I'm Orajit Reeves. I, uh, so I got into this whole uh, deal with, <clears throat> as you say, uh, saving mother earth 
and uh, quite a few years back, uh, but it started uh, in my childhood, um, right at my right in my hometown, when I saw the effects of very very dangerous effects of uh, river sand mining, and exactly how it can be uh, when when uh, uh, when a local bridge got a crack due to excessive extraction of silt and sand from the riverbed. So that was basically like the starting point of when I, when I like consciously realized that, uh, okay, this is like, this is something, this is bad. And we like, we really need to think about how we are uh, dealing with resources in this world. Mm -hmm. So it was right after that that I uh, shifted to the city because I'm a small town boy. So, <laughs> and I shifted to the city for my graduation. Uh, I have a, a bachelor's in zoology. So, um, when I went uh, to the city for the first time, it was it was the first problematic thing for me was breathing <laughs> because mm -hmm. the air was the air was heavy it was so heavy from pollution that it uh, it was really like i had to like gasp for breaths um over the years i saw how like the city planning was how uh city administration was handling pollution they were handling um say uh, so in kolkata the city that I was in uh, there's um the v, uh, traffic is like it's off the charts so uh, it was it was very interesting to see how city administration was actually handling traffic um then there was uh, the the solutions to uh, the water and drainage uh, in the city the drainage is a huge problem in uh, Kolkata because every monsoon, when there's heavy rains, uh, the city like almost gets flooded. Uh, so that's because there's like clogged drains and like it it gets bad. It gets bad. So like parts of the city, like there's like knee knee high water or like waist high water. So it's it gets bad. Uh, then when I uh so there's all of this like stimuli like coming to me over the years and then for when i graduated i was like okay so let's uh let's do something uh for like for this because it's been affecting me for some time now and also because i i i hate being in inside a laboratory so i was like okay <laughs> Let's let's do let's do uh, a post graduation a master's in uh, environmental science. So I enrolled in that course uh, in the city of Kolkata itself. Uh, post graduated last year in that. So during that time, I was uh, I was working on uh, various different things, but one of these uh, research projects that was uh, going on in the department was uh, on. Uh, air quality monitoring and uh, forming a risk index for the population that resides in the city. And also uh, a prediction modeling for how the pollutants are gonna change in terms of concentration, as well as how their spatial variation is gonna be. So that, mm -hmm. uh, that, that is a st that is still an ongoing project and I was a field volunteer there. What I saw during my time as a field volunteer was that well there like there like it's it like there was good reason why I had to gasp for air when I yeah. came to the city first right so mm -hmm. so basically what you what we did was so we sampled air for different pollutants, right? So we had uh, 
So there's, we, we used to uh, let air pass through filter papers. There's, these are specialized quartz filter papers uh, of different pore sizes. So this one was, uh, we had like 10 microns and we had like 2.5 microns. So those mi uh, microns is uh, micrometers, just for clarity. Uh, Thank so, you. I actually didn't know that. So that was very helpful for me to learn now. <laughs> okay. So, so we used to sample for like 24 hours and uh, on like eight hour intervals, we used to change the uh, filter papers. And after eight hours, we used to take it out. Bruh, that was darker than my future. <laughs> <laughs> that filter paper was like darker than my future. And it's like, and it's just it's just particulate matter on 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 the filter. It's just particulate matter, like everything. Like there's there's different compounds. There's plastic. There's everything. Like whatever you're breathing, it's there. And then when the air passed down through the filter vapor, we used to sample it for uh, ammonia, ozone, uh, sulfur dioxide, and nitrogen dioxide. So socks, we call it socks and knocks because there's different um, uh, compounds of uh, sulfur oxides. But anyway, so the point was uh, socks was very high. Uh, oxides of sulfur were very high because in the city, a lot of uh, heavy traffic used to move around. And by heavy traffic, I mean like trucks and uh, uh, that used to carry like uh, like tons of shit like all over the state right so they used diesel so they are mostly they mostly run on diesel and in combustion systems uh, diesel is the primary producer of sulfur dioxide sucks so which is why due to the high uh high number of uh, diesel run vehicles, we're getting high SOX concentrations. Why is this important? And why is this harmful is that we have a very, uh, like we have a nice uh, lengthy monsoon season here, right? That is a contributor directly to acid rain. Mm -hmm. So, any if you if you see any like structures made out of marble it's gonna turn yellow it's gonna mm -hmm. corrode slowly over time it's gonna corrode a lot of a lot of uh, construction and architecture it's gonna it's just gonna corrode over a few years so that's bad and as for uh, ozone it acts as a secondary pollutant here so even that was high in like pockets of the city. But anyway, uh, the good part was of the project is that the prediction modeling that we did allowed us to uh, identify hotspots in the city for different pollutants mm -hmm. and as well as uh, highlight uh, exactly where the pollutants are shifting, are gonna shift over time, over the years. And and it was done on a very uh, seasonal scale. So that was nice. So after I completed my post-graduation last year, I did this work in the Sundarbans on a project called Delta Lives. It, um, it was this independent project. So we used to go there to sort of uh, highlight the, so we used to work in this village in an island called the Bali Islands. So yeah, we and can you, sorry to interrupt, Arshi, can you explain what the Sundarbans are as well, just as you're jumping into this? Right, so Sundarbans is like the world's largest uh, Delta ecosystem, right? So uh, most of it is in Bangladesh, uh, but uh, a large part is also in India and in the state of West Bengal. So it's, uh, it's a huge area that's where it's uh, only a small part is inhabited 
by people but <clears throat> in that small part the number uh, the number of people that live there is amazing like when i first saw these statistics on that i was like uh, it's i mean that's twice the size of my town that the number of people that live oh wow and oh. and 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 that's just like it's a delta and it's uh, it's like it's only just villages and it's just rural areas and forests and it's uh, i mean i can't even explain like you'll have to you'd have to go there like see for yourself right but yeah so i used to work in this village and there are so many villages there that they don't even name them anymore they just numbered them <laughs> Oh so, my gosh. <laughs> so I was in a uh, village number 10 of the Bali Islands. So it was just opposite so I used to live in this little homestay there it was just opposite to the forest range office because it's a it's a uh, it's a national park it's a protected area. So uh so yeah so I used to live there uh, work there. So we were working on highlighting the local Uh, art and craft which is slowly getting lost and they have some amazing artists there so we are doing that and we at the same time we were uh, we put in we also put in place this uh uh, uh like uh, like a computer and we put in a broadband connection and everything for the kids of the village to uh have like classes uh so so that we had like people on the team uh who like some from the US some from other parts of the country so they were teaching them online uh like english art classes uh computer classes and all of that so that was so that was one part another part was like why we highlighted their art and craft was to basically set up a business model for them so that they can uh like look for other avenues other than relying on the forest itself because mm-hmm. the major problem there with livelihood is that most of the people depend on forest products or forest resources and by that i mean they would go out to uh fish in like creeks in the forest or uh but catch uh crabs from the mud or there's or uh, harvest honey from the forest why is this why we were trying to put in a secondary solution for that is that a lot of people lose their lives to it every year because the forest because the sundarbans is known for its uh tigers the bengal tiger the royal bengal tiger and in all of the country Uh, the most ferocious ones are found here so yeah so like there is this village called the widow village because every woman there has lost their husbands oh to, my gosh to the to like because uh, like the, they were mauled by the tigers like it was that bad so there's a whole village there that's named like a widow village so so it's so it's that bad so it's either the tiger in the forest or the crocodiles in the water so like you take your pick so yeah so it's bad and so that's why we were trying to like build this model for them so that they don't have to rely so much on the forest resources i mean i we cannot fully like isolate them from the forest like they will they are some part of the population will obviously do that but we're just trying to uh at least the next generation or the kids so that they don't grow up and do that i know like some kids will grow up and do that but not the huge popular not the larger population at least so we were trying to give them uh some options beyond that yeah uh, so that was uh, so that was the uh work that we were doing there so yeah uh that's that's all <laughs> yeah, 
No, thank you, Arjit. And um, yeah, just a, a few thoughts quickly. I I remember getting to to Kolkata and and feeling um, a similar uh, experience with the air. Um, and I think it, it reminded me of a few places in New York as well, right? Because there are certain parts of New York that are actually, um, you know, very polluted. Um, Thanks for also, too heavy. Yeah. And honestly, you know, it's, it changes neighborhood to neighborhood, right? And I think that's, that's what yeah, a lot exactly. of things, um, you know, whether you're in Kolkata or New York, it's very similar. It's the same. It's the same. It's just different cities. Yeah. same um, and a lot of it goes back to what Jen said about where the high income areas are as well, and who has the money to to live in certain spots that are not, um, you know, brownfield sites are a big thing in New York where a lot of trash gets dumped or where um, there are certain power plants that get started. Um, and a lot of that is dictated on you know, what communities have have money and and what don't. Um, but I also remember um, you were kind enough to take me down to, to the Sunderbahn National Park as well. And um, you said you either will look out for the tigers on land or the crocodiles in the water, but you failed to mention that the tigers also swim. So, yeah, uh, about that. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there are amazing things that, um, that you're doing with the communities down there. And um, I think the two of you shared a lot of similar sentiments around thinking through how are we dealing or interacting with the resources in this world, right? In a sustainable way. Um, also thinking about, you know, indigenous approaches and maybe learning from those approaches to help us inform how we interact with resources. Um, I think both of those are, you know, really interesting points and important to, to highlight. But Jen, I, if you don't mind, would you go a little bit more into um, some of the work you've done once again, at this sort of intersection of, of ocean conservation and human rights. And um, I think there's a lot to get into with your work on, you know, with Fishwise, but um, would love to hear more about sort of that experience. And um, I think it ties into a lot of stuff Orji is working on too. So there might be some, some cool overlap there. Yeah, um, I will definitely talk about it. Caveat being, of course, I am no longer at Fishwise. I don't represent Fishwise in any way. Um, but I, I did want to speak to the point you made um, about learning from indigenous perspectives, because I think that that's something that we see happening in a more and more formalized way through academia and research papers. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, you know, in many ways encouraging. Um, and like, that is the goal, right? To be learning from and working with people who have a different approach than maybe what is, you know, traditionally seen for academia. Um, however, like when you're doing that, how do we ensure that as those perspectives are being brought into the space, they're um, being appropriately uh, acknowledged, appropriately compensated for the ways in which um, this work is occurring and also uh, for topics that are not yet like normalized within academia yeah. uh, recognizing that they are just as valid like studying an indigenous approach that's been around for thousands of years um, does not make it more valid than an approach that has not yet been studied so mm. uh, I just wanted to briefly kind of say that with the caveat of like you know how do, how do we ensure we're really intentional um, with the ways that this occurs and ideally it occurs because um, indigenous voices are the ones kind of bringing these perspectives into a space um, uh, as opposed to the other way around. So I wanted to leave with that. that caveat, but uh, on the topic of, you know, human rights and seafood specifically, the US and EU, I think we're in a really interesting, bad interesting, I suppose, place in 2014 to 2016. You know, that was a time when there were all of these uh, investigations and articles from the Associated Press, from The Guardian, from The New York Times. Uh, Ian Urbina, actually, I think I have his book right here. 
if I can grab it. Ian Urbina, one of the New York Times authors, did a series about um, human rights abuses in the seafood industry. Uh, then he like took a lot of time off from being a, a reporter for the New York Times. He wrote a book about it, Outlaw Ocean, and now it is a podcast itself. And I think they've had a few episodes. Um, but you know, human rights abuses in like the apparel industry uh, have been commonly yeah. known for twenty years or so. And it was, I wouldn't even say like underground knowledge. It was kind of in my perspective, um, known, although not published, that there were likely human rights abuses in the seafood industry. But with this series of investigative reporting about it, some of which won Pulitzer Prizes, like the AP won Pulitzer Prizes for reporting on slavery and shrimp supply chains, um, there was a really a really encouraging in some ways pivot towards focusing on not just seafood sustainability, which is something, you know, the seafood sustainability, environmental sustainability movement is pretty long and established compared to most um, sustainability movements in food systems and food supply chains. You know, that, that um, movement was started, I think now almost 25 years ago. Uh, and then a little over five years ago, these issues of human rights abu- abuses were brought into the space as well. Um, and it left many kind of companies scrambling to say, all right, how do we ensure that we also have a robust um, approach to addressing human rights abuses and human rights risks in our supply chains? And, yeah. um, you know, it would seem as though there are a lot of templates from the sustainability movement. And how do you address this? You know, that movement's built on audits and certifications and third party ratings. Um, and then also kind of some initiatives for smaller players. Uh, but that's not, I mean, I think there are debates about how effective that approach is for environmental sustainability. That approach is not going to work in human rights. You yeah. know, it's, you know, an audit or a certifications, a nice tool to have in your toolbox. But if you only have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, So how do you make sure if you're thinking about humans, you actually, you know, consider the ways humans are really different than, uh, you know, an organism that cannot speak, that doesn't have the incentives that humans have in the world. Um, and you consider how that informs what people are saying, what they're able to tell you about, um, things that are happening to them or things that are seeing it informs how you think about, you know, other initiatives that you should be supporting. Like I said, I worked in, um, this space of, okay, how do you mitigate human rights abuses? How do you address human trafficking for such a long time? And really one of the best ways to address it is to improve incomes for people who are likely to go out and seek jobs in other countries, seek cross borders in order to get a job in a way that makes them vulnerable to, you know, uh, a recruitment agent who's just conning them or placing them into a job that they don't want to have or um, placing them into a situation of forced labor um right and so that's a part of the reason now why it's okay how do you how do you close some of these global income gaps how do you provide um tools and technology to regions where uh that can really help them um improve kind of their own like i said incomes like how do you how do you help communities in that way or how do you work with communities in that way help is not the right word as opposed to uh, working on the other end where abuses have already occurred. Um, And the best case situation is that there is some sort of remediation and that includes, you know, payment for work that people have done. In many cases, we fall short of that, even for instances where, you know, this person is documented to have experienced uh, human rights abuse or a labor violation and, you know, many reporters know it. Um, 
oftentimes these people still do not receive income for the work that they had done um, under situations of forced labor for all of that time spent. And that's a lot of times why people don't leave because they're still waiting for money because they've gotten this job that didn't turn out to be a job to send money home to their family or, you know, improve their life in some way. So it's this multi-pronged issue and um, it's, you know, trying to work in the past, having worked at the kind of back end of that problem and now being like, how do we make sure this just happens less or doesn't happen at all? Because that is the world that, you know, I think all of us would like to live in. Amen to that. And honestly, a lot of what you just spoke about reminds me of what Orajit's also working on in the Sundarbans, right? It's yeah, it's, uh, it's a similar sort of a situation here. So like <clears throat> the Sundarbans population is a very shifting, it's a very dynamic population, right? So there's nothing called people from the Sundarbans. It's all just people from say Bangladesh because it's just near, like you can just like take a boat and like it's a three hour uh, boat ride and you will be into the uh, the next country. So it's like people from neighboring states, uh, uh, another country, and they're just, they're just there. And it's all because like, because uh, I don't know, like they're poor, they, they needed another place to stay. So it's a shifting population. And most of the times what happens is, uh, the working class, the working group there, right? They, there is this season of work where in the summers, they move out of the villages, they go into the cities, right? And they work there. And they work there, they stay there, they send back home the money. And most often than, uh, like most often than not, it's like they don't get paid for their work. So it's a similar kind of a situation. So, so that's why they end up, uh, I mean, they think that they're going to stop relying on forest resources and like get a job. Like if they go to the city, they're going to have like better opportunities. And, uh, but in the end, somehow they just still have to rely on the forest. And uh, in that process, like people end up losing their lives. So so it's so it's that um, so, so it's still it's still how indigenous like i mean all over the world is just similar like indigenous communities being uh, used and oppressed and it's just a cycle it it mm-hmm. just keeps on going but uh, one thing that i uh, that that i wanted to point out is that um, this thing that Jen said was uh, like working with the indigenous communities, right? To uh, to bring about say any kind of change, right? So the the marine national park that was put up behind your grandma's house, right? So it was done without any discussion or without any holding talks with the community there from Guam, right? Uh, so that shouldn't be the case, ideally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in India, there is this uh, in the in the forest uh, in the uh, in the Forest Act of India. Uh, it's a law. So there is this um, in 1988 uh, in the state of West Bengal, where I'm from, uh, a new uh, a new thing was started called Joint Forest Management, JFM. So what happened was uh, up until that time, 1988, uh, there was a lot of uh, difficulties in uh, penetrating into the forest and uh, putting in place all of the protocols that the forest department had because they did not have that bond or that same platform with the tribes that live in the jungle and in india like there's like thousands of tribes that thrive literally thrive in the jungle and they don't they don't require 
they don't need to come out of the forest what they did was they said okay we don't need to go like we don't need to bypass them and then put in our protocols we just include them so what they started was this joint forest management so they included the tribes the communities that lived on the in the forest or just by the forest all the tribes the villages and they would call them together and they would then uh build up like strategies and uh, different uh, uh any new thing that they any new protocol that they wanted in place any new solution to any problem because at the end of the day uh, those tribes knew the forest better than the forest department so uh so that so that's that's how yeah. it that's how they started and it's still in place and now if you go to any national park in india and go on a safari so all the people that you see there in the forest department all of the rangers and everyone who's working there they're all locals like they're all like from the local tribes and villages that are working there so they get job in the forest department because they're locals they know the forest well and everything like so i've seen it firsthand so yeah uh, yeah so so that's a nice thing in terms of the forest department but uh, i wish like it was the same all over the world but that's not the case <laughs> but yeah yeah so i guess uh, like it is a it is a need like where indigenous communities must be involved in policy making or anything that concerns their environment and their surroundings mm-hmm. you cannot just like neglect them and like go okay i'm going to put i'm going to do this bye bye <laughs> you can't do that. exactly yeah. yeah well well said arjit and thank you for bringing up that that example of the joint forest management you are reading my mind because I, i i think a big a big framing to this is um what solutions are working right like what what have we seen that can be used as a positive case study or example of um how to work with these communities in a better way. I also love that you're both working on reimagining these local economies, but then also thinking about how they play into this global structure because that's, you know, inherent in everything that's happening in this globalized world right now is that everything's interconnected. So, you know, me here in New York, you know, I'm going to be interacting maybe not in person, but with the fisheries in Guam. and um you know with the folks that are harvesting honey in the sunderbans so it's it's this interesting dynamic of this locally focused you know community centric work but then also thinking about how it plays into a larger picture but um i'll stop rambling jen i'm i'm curious what you've seen as examples that have worked and i i think good machine might be a good place to go at this point too because i know mm-hmm. you guys are thinking about Now you're out there talking with communities about what they're working on, what they um what they could use uh support with. Um I know you said help is not the right word, but maybe there's a partnership that you guys can help facilitate. Curious how you guys are thinking about that and if you've seen uh, a few a few good examples you can share. Yeah, so One of the examples that comes to mind is actually from um a company that predates good machine but is still kind of in the good machine universe and that's pelagic data systems and what pelagic data systems is is so take a step step back we're thinking about fishing here um out of all of the fishing boats in the world only about 5% of them um regularly have like vessel monitoring so there's some sort of device mm-hmm. on the vessel that helps you track it a lot of times these vessel monitoring systems can be turned on and off um or they're you know not recording a lot of tracks or so like maybe they're sending a location point once an hour or so um and that's in part why a lot of these instances of like illegal fishing can happen at sea you know someone 
turns off their vessel monitoring system and then they go to you know someone else's waters uh Right. or like a preserve um, similar to what I was mentioning before. But, you know, that's only 5% of the vessels in the world. And usually there are these like large scale commercial vessels and that really leaves out, you know, the majority of the world's fishing, which is small scale fishing. Um, and so what Pelagic Data Systems does is uh, we have a hardware technology. It's a solar powered unit. Oh gosh, I have one downstairs. I should have it next to me for uh, my cool. calls, but it's um, about as big as my head, a little bit smaller than my head. Um, we work with a lot of fishing communities across the world in about 45 countries um, to awesome. deploy this device. And all you have to do if you're a fisher who's using it is put it on brackets on whatever your boat is and pelagic data systems works on boats that are as small as like a dugout canoe. So this works on a boat of any size. Uh, and because it's solar power, just putting it out in the sun helps turn it on, right? So it is the easiest thing to install and use. And again, this is like a solution for the 95% of the world that doesn't have any vessel yeah. tracking and a small scale so you know maybe whatever or I, I know whatever you know large scale what these huge boats are using is not going to work on something like a canoe um and so with these fishing locations um what a fisheries management program can actually do is better manage its coastal resources because all of this information about where people are actually going fishing um that was previously unknown uh, is now known to the fishers themselves, um, to the government organization that manages the fisheries, um, if they decide to share it or if there's like an, a decree. Um, and then any kind of local community organization um, focused on kind of better management of fisheries or better resource management. Um, they can all understand what's happening uh, for each coastal community where you're actually seeing an abundance of fish, where you aren't, what the changes over time are and where fish are going. Um, and then can like better plan for, you know, where people should be fishing when they shouldn't be fishing. Um, because there's this community-based system, um, for understanding how we're, engaging with our coastal waters and the fish that are in it um so i would say Very that cool. is one of these like bright spots and uh we did a partnership pelagic data systems did a partnership with world fish um to provide data to some of the world fish researchers and communities that world fish worked in um mm. And then like show what's happening for small scale fisheries and after doing this pretty community sourced project, um, the government uh, then began to pay um, for the fishers to continue to use these devices and then to also be able to kind of integrate small scale fisheries into the way they're managing the coast. So cool, so cool. And it's, it's community based, but you also said that they're covering what, 45 countries now? Yeah, so Pelagic Data Systems um, devices are now in about 45 countries. I don't know the exact number. It's somewhere between <laughs> 40 and 50. So <laughs> no, that's awesome because I think that's that's so so oftentimes the, the key challenge, right, is if something's super localized in a community, is that scalable? And can other people learn from it in a concrete way? Um, seems like that's been a really successful solution. Um, on both the local and the global scale. So very, very cool. And it, it reminds me a little bit, Orjit, also, um, I'm not sure if you want to talk a little bit about JGVK and some of the work that they're doing, or if you want to go a completely different direction, forget what I'm saying. But um, I was really inspired by the work that you and your team were doing in Kolkata around tracking air pollution, but then also setting up predictive modeling to figure out how to actually respond to that. Um, but then I also was able and lucky enough to spend some time down at uh, 
in the Sunderbonds with this organization, um, JGBK, that you introduced me to. So um, curious for examples that you've seen to be working in, in your own world, in addition to that joint forest management you, you highlighted. Yeah, so uh, from whatever I've told you, it's like, um, like where my dad works at the uh, JGBK, it's basically uh, an NGO which doubles as this uh, uh, this place where uh, this research project from Denmark uh, is is being carried out. So he uh, so first the first phase uh, till date was the monitoring bit which I've already told you. Uh, now they are looking into uh, solutions, uh, to implement so that uh, the problem there is that uh, since it's very near to the coast, uh, there's um, so seawater uh, gets into groundwater reservoirs and it, it is deemed useless for agriculture, uh, for consumption. So they're trying to mitigate that problem. And another side to that is that the groundwater reserves are the levels of groundwater is slowly, not slowly, it's like drastically depleting because um, so it's, in, it's near the coast, uh, the south, and the groundwater is recharged up north. Right, so if you if you let the monsoon uh, recharge it up north, the water is gonna flow down south, and it's gonna recharge the southern belt as well. But what what is happening is that there's so much of water being used up in the north, is that there's no water that's uh, that's flowing down and recharging in the southern belt. And it's mostly due to, uh, since India is a very agrarian-based country, so uh, a lot of water is being used up north uh, for agriculture. So now uh, they are trying to uh, bring in systems, um, water, uh, water systems that are that use up uh, less water for irrigation in the fields uh, up north so that waters so that uh, water can be so the groundwater can be easily recharged uh, down in the south and as for the sundarbans which is like the southernmost point um, it's uh, they are trying on both ends to recharge the groundwater as well as uh, how to use the water that is already there use it judiciously in a way that uh, they can harvest uh, uh, good amounts of uh, rice and paddy. Uh, and at the same time, there's this uh, huge research going on in um, uh, coming up with different varieties of, since rice is like a very, it's like the, it's like the most common thing that is, grown here right so rice uh, so they've come up with different varieties variants of subspecies of rice that is seawater resistant so even if there's uh, seawater in the groundwater reserves uh, it's gonna grow so that's very specific to the sundarbans because it is it has this uh, like it's a like decades, it's a problem of decades where like uh, seawater just gets into the agricultural lands and spoils everything. So right yeah. now solutions are coming up. Uh, I mean, they have been coming up, but uh, my dad's organization is, uh, the way he works is slowly starting to implement it in the local villages and local blocks. And uh, so that uh, uh, the villagers can at least uh, have like better source of income for themselves. Yeah. yeah. And if anyone's interested in learning more about that project at JGBK, um, we did a segment on 
on that specific organization in season one of Brim. Um, so I will link to that, but also feel free to, to, um, to scroll back in, in the different episodes. And we actually interviewed Orjit's dad as well, um, who is an amazing person. Um, but I don't want to overstep here, but it could be fun to plant a seed of uh, good machine working with the Sunderbonds. I don't know how that would happen or what that really looks like for you, Jen, but it seems like a pretty interesting fit. Um, and I don't, yeah, I'm just planting that seed. <laughs> see oh yeah, I I love that seed. Um, like I said, I mean, the, the beauty of being at an organization like Good Machine, which is, you know, this venture studio model, um, we have a lot of projects and companies going on at the same time um, yeah. all over the world. And, you know, we're just looking for good partners that we can work with to get you done, deploy a solution that they tell us is needed. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> there can be, we can think of something. Nice. Uh, since I was since like I came I came here on campus uh, since I joined this new institute uh, like uh, everywhere around me is like seems like like there's like ton of opportunities so uh, I was thinking uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do something with this as well like you know bring the institute into some of the collaborations so that since since uh, since it's a, like a national university and everything so it's gonna be nice to because they have, they have, uh, we have our own incubation center here, so oh. we have, yeah. So the institute has uh, institute supports this. They have a, a research part where they provide um, the infrastructure and the funding for uh, startups and companies that they deem are gonna be nice for the country. So yeah, uh, right cool. now, yeah, like right now, like half the building has people working like has companies and half is like no one stepped in yet so That's this cool. is an in incentive for good machine to set up here <laughs> i like it well, satellite office <laughs> yeah there you yeah, go yeah. Yeah. i love it um and thank you guys so much for for being so generous with your time i know um we had planned for uh, a shorter meeting and you guys have have gone over and given um so many incredible insights. So um, is there any any other last things that you want to mention about what you're working on or what's coming down um, the path for you? Uh, I'll, I'll let you each sort of leave you each with last words here. Um, if there's anything that you'd like to, to mention or to, to raise. Oh, gosh, I guess um, <laughs> I will say I will do a really quick one, which is you know, as humans, a lot of times when we look around and think about what we're conserving and what we want to manage, um, we're limited by what our eyes can see. And that leaves a lot of what's happening under the ocean surfaces or sometimes what's happening uh, along the coast uh, out of the picture. And so I would say, you know, if you're working in the conservation space, our lands and our waters are so interconnected. I think RG shared that more than I did today, um, but ensuring that, you know, you're prioritizing both and the types of things happening, air, land and sea are all a part of um, an interconnected conservation plan uh, or environmental effort. Awesome, thank you. So, like, uh, yeah, I mean, what Jen said really, like, uh, it's not, it's not an isolated thing where you just talk about the land or the sea or the water uh, or the air. Uh, you gotta think of them holistically in a way that where you change something in one part and you know it's going to inflict change on the other side of the spectrum but just so you like just so that just so people know that when you're making that change you're conscious of what's going to happen or you're co conscious of the consequences that it's going to have 
So yeah. as long as we're aware of that, I think we're sort of good. I think we're more than sort of good. I think you guys are working on incredible things. And um, like I said, at the very start, you both have been incredibly motivational and a big inspiration for me. So um, really excited to continue to work with both of you. Uh, for those that want to hear more from Jen and Orajit, um, they are now a part of Brim's global working group. So uh, we'll be, you know, having the chance to, to work together more in the future and on some, uh, some really exciting projects. So thank you both so much for your time today again. Um, and yeah, hope everyone enjoyed. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks thank you. Us.